Well, good morning again. It is approximately 510 miles from Clyde, Kansas, to the outskirts of Denver, Colorado. Uh, the reason I know that so well is because um, every year, uh, usually around the end of July or early August, uh, my family, uh, growing up, we would uh, pack up our vehicle, we would uh, attach the, the tent trailer and pack it up, and we would head off for Colorado. Uh, my mom grew up there, I had a grandpa out there, and aunts and uncles, and, and we always looked forward to that time to get away before school started, to get out there and camp and hike and fish and, and just be together as a family. Now back then, 510 miles seemed longer than it does now. One, because I was younger, but two, was because the speed limit was 55. And um, it took a while, and, and I, I have a lot of Lot. Looking back, I have a lot of sympathy for mom and dad. There's three of us, all within four years. And, and we would travel out there to Colorado. And, and they had all these little things that they would do to kind of keep us engaged. Because back then, you didn't have video games. You didn't have cell phones. You didn't have a VCR with movies. Uh, you did, you know, it was basically whatever mom and dad chose to put on the radio. And, and this is your own imagination. And so they would give us things like uh, we had this little magnetic chess and checker set. You could flip it over and play either way. And we would do that. We would read books um, uh, on, on the hour. If we there were special snacks and if we were good, you know, well behaved, we got snacks. Uh, there were times when we were very hungry for a long time. Um, you know, that's how it works. Um, but but we would do all sorts of things to keep ourselves engaged. Dad would throw me the map and say, how far to Goodland, even though he knew how far it was just to kind of give me something to do. But one of the things I do remember is that when we would get close to Denver, we had this little game, my brother and sister and I, to see who could see the mountains first. And so we would, I don't even know if there was a prize or anything. We just wanted to be the first ones to see the mountains. And so we would, once we got into eastern Colorado, we would start staring ahead, looking in at the horizon. And, uh, and just so we could say, I see the mountains, to beat the other two. And, of course, once in a while, we'd get a little ahead of ourselves. And that's a, no, that's a cloud. Never mind. There's things like that, you know. But we were so excited to see the mountains first because, you know, we had great memories. We knew what was waiting for us when we got to the mountains. It was a wonderful time as a family. Now that I have my own family, I try to get to Colorado with, with my wife and kids as, as often as we can get. And usually we try to get there once a year. It doesn't always work out, but typically we try to get there once a year. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that I like to do that is I hope they have the same love and appreciation for the mountains that, that, that I do. I take them to the mountains also so that we can spend time together away from cable TV or the Internet or cell phones or video games and things like that. So we can talk and we can read and we can make meals together and we can play games and we can hike and just relax and, and be together as a family and spend time outdoors. I also take them to the mountains so that they can gain an appreciation for God's creation. So they get a sense of God's power and, and majesty and goodness and creativity and beauty. And so they get a sense of a perspective because nothing puts you, gives you perspective more than being in the mountains. I mean, you, you feel small and things are huge around you. The mountains are huge and beautiful and, and, and it puts things in perspective and, and it humbles you. And, and if that doesn't humble you, you think you're in pretty good shape. You start hiking and you're bent over gasping for air. So it keeps you humbled. You know, when I think of climbing and mountains, I, I often will look at a, a picture that I have in my office. Um, over the years, I have three or four photos from family vacations and that my, my wife and a friend have kind of turned into sort of a poster that's framed. And, and I have one from a cabin, looking out from a cabin that we rented 
uh, in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains uh, down uh, west and south of Pueblo. And as you look out there, you're looking through a meadow across this little stream, and you see this big mountain sticking up in the background. At the bottom of the, of the picture, there is a verse that's inscribed, Psalm 121. I look to the mountains, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You know, I, I think of Psalm 8 when I'm in the mountains. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little bit lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Another passage that comes to mind is Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will hold me fast. For whatever reason, the way I'm wired when I'm in the mountains, it, it's, it's almost easier for me to, to sense and connect with God. You know, it's interesting that in the Bible, God often calls people to the mountains, often meets them there. For example, God calls Abraham to a mountain and God tests him by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham passes the test and Isaac's life is spared. Another example, God calls Elijah to, to face down 700 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. God reveals his power over those false gods. After the great flood, God makes a promise to Noah through the rainbow after placing him and his ark on Mount Ararat. And Jesus himself takes James, John, and Peter up to the Mount of Transfiguration, where God the Father confirms that Jesus Christ is indeed God's Son. So this week we come to Mount Sinai, a place in the desert where God and uh, where the people of Israel and Moses get their first real glimpse of God. The scripture tells us the mountains shake, it's covered with smoke and fire, they hear thunder. God is there and the people are terrified. And it's here that they learn to fear God, to have a holy respect, a deep awe, a total humility before the living God here on the mountain. So today we're continuing our sermon series uh, called Summer Vacation. And if you weren't with us last week, to give you a quick recap, we are looking at different stories where God's people are on a journey together, or maybe there's an individual traveling, and, and, and God reveals himself or teaches them something about himself, about themselves. And we're trying to take those lessons and apply them to ourselves, as we all, are, in a sense, are on a journey through life as individuals, as families, and as God's people, as God's church and, and family. And today we come to a well-known story at Mount Sinai, where we see that God is calling Moses up the mountain, and, and Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And as God always does when he calls us, he has something to teach us, to give us something for our journey of faith in life. So if you're not still in Exodus 20, I want to encourage you to turn there with me. We'll be looking at some of the <laughs> verses out of this passage. You can follow along on the screen as well. Now, I don't think that God put the, put the Ten Commandments in the order that he did by accident. You see, the first four commandments, those are the ones we'll be focusing on this morning, deal with our relationship with God. And the next six are concerned with our relationships with other people. They're sort of uh, precursors 
to what Jesus himself taught in Matthew 22. It's a passage we refer to at different times here and there because of our mission statement, deeper in Christ and further in mission. Remember the, remember the situation? Jesus has just stumped some religious leaders who have posed him a question uh, about the resurrection of the dead. They're trying to trip him up and make him look bad in front of the people. It doesn't work. So they come up with another one. They think, okay, we'll get him with this one. This is a toughie. And they ask him in Matthew 22, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, remember the law refers to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in answer to this question, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is love God with everything you are and everything you have. He says the second is to love others as you love yourself. Everything, he says, is summed up in these two commandments. So in other words, the first priority in our life is to be our relationship with God. And our second priority is to be our relationship with other people. That's exactly the order that God gives to Moses. Verse 2, the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Verse 7, the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Verse 8, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So each of these first four have to do with our relationship with God. The next six, honor your father and mother, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. They all have to do with our relationship with the people around us, right? And if we want to do well with the last six, we first got to focus on the first four. Because the quality of our relationship with the people around us is directly correlated to the quality of our relationship with God. I'm going to say that a different way. The only way we will consistently be able to keep the second six commandments and in the process have good, healthy, God-honoring relationships with the people around us is if we consistently keep the first four, putting our relationship with God as our highest priority, loving him, as Jesus told us, with all our heart, soul, and mind. So in the Bible, God brings people to the mountains to reveal himself, to grow their faith. In this case, to give them some commandments to deepen their relationship with him. Why would he have had to do that? Well, you see, the people of Israel had been slaves for several hundred years at this point. And so anybody who was alive, the only way that they knew how to relate and to live, the only identity that they knew was was as a slave. You know, as I was reading through this story, I, I, I thought about current events, and you all, you, I'm sure you've all pretty much heard about the two um, convicts, the two criminals, murderers, who escaped from the prison, the high-security high prison in upstate New York. Incredible story. I mean, hacksaws, power tools, powering through the wall, going through air ducts, all sorts of things, uh, popping up through a manhole cover. I mean, it's, it's an incredible story and haven't caught them yet. 
And, and it made me think of the Shawshank Redemption. Remember that movie from, oh, 15, 20 years ago? Um, it, would inclu- it also included an incredible escape. Uh, a man who, in this case, was unjustly convicted of his wife's murder. He's stuck in a, in a southern prison, and he, he, he spends time. He, he gets this rock, this rock chisel or hammer, and he, he makes his way through the wall, and he, then, he, then he goes through a duct, and he has to crawl through a sewer at the end to get out and get free. Remember the story? Well, one of the characters, one of his group of posse, his close friends in the prison, was an old man. Remember him? Uh, he's a librarian. He's been there for decades. And when he's finally released, when he finally gets parole, he has no idea whatsoever about what to do. I mean, he gets in the outside world. He is totally lost. Does not know how to live as a free man. He, he, he longs to be back in the prison. He, he, he's like a fish out of water. And he, he writes these letters, these heartbreaking letters back to his buddies who are on the inside still. And, and, and they're talking, reading the letters, and they're wondering about him. And they're like, why is he doing this? How can, why is he doing these things? And, and struggling this. And, and one of them says, well, you have to understand he's been institutionalized. In other words, all he knew was how to live in the institutional prison. He had been programmed and shaped into, into someone who did not know how to live as a free man. No doubt many of the Israelites were struggling with the same thing. They had been institutionalized. They had been slaves from the time they had been born. They knew no other way of life. All they knew was how to live as slaves. And so God brings them through the desert. He brings them to the Red Sea, brings them through the Red Sea. He reveals himself to them through miracles and provision. And he brings them to Mount Sinai to give them very clear directions on how to live as free people, as his people. And he begins by saying, start here. Make me your highest priority. You see, the Ten Commandments aren't primarily a list of do's and don'ts, although they are commandments, we, things we're supposed to do and things we aren't supposed to do. But they are designed and given to grow a healthy relationship with God where we can live in freedom with him, give love to him and receive his love in obedience. God wanted a covenant relationship with his people. He wants that same thing with us today. God says this in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We have shades of, of 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 here, where the Apostle Peter said this about who we are to be as people. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So God gave the Israelites and he gave us the Ten Commandments so that we would know how to live as his people, as his treasured possession. And each commandment is designed and given to develop and to protect and to nurture and to deepen our relationships with him and with the people around us. So let's take a look. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, this should have hit home with the the Israelites. 
I mean, in Egypt, there were many, many gods all around them. Gods of fertility, gods of the harvest, gods of the afterlife, gods of nature, etc., etc. And they would have been tempted to adopt or at least recognize some of these gods as, as valid. Because the Egyptians seemed to be winning, right? I mean, they were on top. They were in power. They were the ones flourishing with wealth and prosperity while the Israelites are crying out to their God and yet they're still in slavery. God took them through slavery, took them through the Red Sea, brings them to the Mount of Mount Sinai and he gives them these commandments and he tells them, I want you to begin your lives as free people, as my people, with the knowledge that I am the one true and only God. St. Augustine famously wrote this. He writes, Our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in Thee. I found that to be more and more true as I grow older. In other words, until we put our trust in God, until we recognize Him as the one true God and put Him first, there's going to be this gnawing restlessness. Maybe not all the time we recognize it. There will be an unsatisfiable itch in our life and in our soul. And like anything that itches, sooner or later we're going to scratch it. And sooner or later we're going to try and fill that restlessness and that longing with something or someone. And whatever we try and fill it with, well, if it's not God, then we're putting something or someone, some other God, before him. Now, the context is a little bit different. We don't live in a world where we see literal idols, statues, and, and strange rites and rituals and sacrifices made to those idols. But there are idols in our world today. I mean, what are some of the other gods that, that we can put before God in our day and age? Well, sometimes it can be our job or our career. Sometimes it can be our bodies, our looks, obsession with exercise, our appeal to the opposite sex. It can be our activities, sports or adventure or clubs. It can even be our children competing through them in sports or music or school or dance at some level, believing their success or lack of it is a direct reflection of our worth and significance. It can even be our, our relationships, our families, putting our relationships with them before a relationship with the living God. But none of these will satisfy that, that itch. None of them will fill that hunger. None of them will bring us ultimate peace and meaning and purpose. Only by putting God first. No other gods before him. Only then will we be able to move forward in faith and in life as we journey through this life as individuals and as people together. The second commandment says, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You know, it's interesting that God describes himself as, as a jealous God. I mean, we usually think of the word jealous as kind of a bad trait, jealousy. And usually it is the way it's usually expressed or manifested. But in this case, jealousy describes a God who has made us and saved us and who passionately wants an exclusive, devoted relationship with us. He will not share us with any other. He wants our full attention. He wants all of our heart, 
all of our mind, all of our life. You know, there was a song uh, back in the 70s called Torn Between Two Lovers. There'll be a few of us that might remember that. Remember the song, Torn Between Two Lovers, Feeling Like a Fool, Loving Both of You is Breaking All the Rules. Remember that song, some of you? I have nightmares for middle school dances regarding that song. <laughs> you might remember uh, Steve McNair also. He was an NFL quarterback a few years later and uh, quite successful, but he was killed by his girlfriend. Because, speculation goes, she discovered that he wouldn't leave his wife for her, and because he also had another girlfriend on the side. Torn between two lovers. Sooner or later, a divided heart, a divided passion, a divided life in love has consequences. It affects our relationships with other people, and it certainly affects our relationship with God. God has designed us for a relationship with him for a a love relationship for him, for him first. And it's not that we can't have love for other people. Certainly, of course, we can. We're called to love our families. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to love the world around us. We're even called to love our neighbors, or our, our, our enemies. But love for God is to be our first and greatest love. God wants what is best for us. And love for him is what's best for us. And any idols we make or worship... Keep us from what's best for us and divide or redirect our love away from our creator. The third commandment says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You know, people (laughs) may think that God doesn't care a whole lot about a little bit of poor language or bad language once in a while. But listen to this in the second half of verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. In the Old Testament, there are many names for God. But one of the most common that was used by the Israelites was the name Yahweh. And, and rabbis had such a reverence for, for this name, Yahweh, that they would never write it out fully. They would just write down their first letter of it, which may seem a little bit over the top, um, maybe even legalistic to us. But the, the point is that there was a tremendous reverence and respect for the name of God. You know, it used to be that a name was incredibly important. Family honor was involved. If, if somebody besmirched the family name and maybe a duel would be called or fights would ensue to, to restore family honor. And people would go to great lengths to bring their name back into good standing because they believe that how somebody viewed their name and what they thought of when they heard their name was a direct reflection upon their character. It was about respect. Well, God cares deeply about his name. And throughout the Bible, he often says things like, for the glory of my name, I will do this or I will do that. There are even times when God says things like, you don't deserve my help, but for the sake of my name, I will deliver you or I will help you or whatever it might be. There is great power in God's name. Jesus prayed before he went to the cross in John 17, 11 and 12, where he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. So if we want to grow in our relationship with God, if we want to truly live in a way as free people that honors God, we we want to move forward in faith as we journey through life, then we are to keep the third commandment. We are to treat God's name with honor and respect.
Finally, the, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Of course, this refers back to Genesis chapter 2, when God rests on the seventh day of creation. You know, one of the benefits of a vacation, of course, for us when we get away is, is you get away from the responsibilities of work. You kind of change your scenario and in situation and get a new perspective and you relax and you rejuvenate, maybe try something new. But another big benefit is you get to be with family or friends or loved ones and you be able to you connect with them. And you give those relationships attention that isn't always possible, you know, maybe as directly in your normal life. But a vacation is the only time that we, we give those relationships attention. It's not going to cut it, right? A few weeks a year, a, a getaway here and there on a weekend just is not enough to, to sustain and nurture and grow a healthy relationship. So it is with our relationship with God. Too often we can give God special time occasionally, maybe a retreat or a conference or a concert, a special service, but, but that isn't really enough. Time in prayer and time in worship, time in God's word, all are, are to be a, a regular part of our relationship with the Lord. And on a weekly basis, we are to give special attention to God. We are to focus on him, to set aside time to reflect, to, re, to refocus, to rest, to worship with God's people, to honor the Sabbath, to keep it holy, and to center our lives again on the God who has created us and called us and saved us. So the last thing I want to say real quickly is at the end of, of this passage of Scripture, we have a description after the Ten Commandments are given of, of an amazing scene. There's, there's thunder, there's lightning, they, they hear a trumpet, the mountains covered with smoke, and the people are terrified. They are afraid, and they, and they, they tell Moses, um, don't have God speak to us or we're going to die. And, and they kind of keep away from a distance. They kind of withdraw because they're afraid. And they're worried. They're terrified. You know, after Jesus Christ came, the Bible tells us that there is a new way that we can approach God. We are still to have a healthy awe and respect of God. The Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is, 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 is a healthy fear of the Lord and his power and his justice. He's holy. He's perfect. We are not. That should always keep us humbled. That should always keep things in perspective for us. We can never be presumptuous. Uh, about God, never taken for granted. But because Jesus Christ came, the Bible tells us that we can now draw near to him with confidence. Hebrews 4 tells us that. We can draw confidence, draw confidently near to God, to the throne of grace, because Jesus Christ came and he died for us on a cross. He is now our, our high priest. And we can come close to him with no condemnation and find new meaning and new hope, new purpose, new life, new beginnings. As through the power of God's Spirit, centered and anchored in His Word, having a personal relationship with God, putting Him first, that we can journey through life with each other and as individuals. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we do thank You that we can now approach the throne of grace confidently. We thank You for Your Word and and, and this truth from, from Exodus 20, where you give Moses and the Israelites, and you give us 
the Ten Commandments. Help us to be people, Lord, who, who put you first, who focus on you, who put nothing in front of you or before you, who put you foremost, who love you first with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then in turn, Lord, out of that love for you, out of that relationship with you, help us then, Lord, to love others as you would have us love them, as we love ourselves, as you have first loved us. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we go to the mountain, both figuratively and literally, Lord. Help us to have perspective about who you are, to know you're there, to know you will reveal yourself to us, to walk in obedience to your word, and to walk in love with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.